Acts chapter 2, in some ways, I've referenced this a little bit, but in some ways it's a little bit monotonous to engage with a book of this length and of this nature going chapter by chapter because uh, there's a certain point where you can't escape particular themes uh, that are resounding throughout the book of Acts. Um, uh, but in the same manner, that's, that's why uh, I felt so strongly that I wanted to engage in this book in this way. Uh, it's because you can't escape some of the themes, and, and maybe God is wanting to speak to us uh, even through it. And so uh, last week we talked about Jesus' commands uh, to build the church, and the command was, okay, uh, to go and build, so to go and do something active, you in fact are going to have to go and do something passive. To go and build the church, uh, I need you to pause. I need you to wait. And it was a reminder for me and a reminder for us that uh, in order to go and be a part of building the church, uh, about establishing God's kingdom here in Vermilion County, um, here in Jerusalem as we see in the book of Acts, in order to go and do that, it is, uh, it is of high priority to us to be dependent on God. And that was Jesus' reminder to us, is that you can't, you can't go do this on your own. You're going to wait on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to empower you. It's God that's going to empower you. So don't try and go do it on your own. He's not asking us to. He's asking us to wait and engage with the Holy Spirit. And so um, this isn't a theme that we're going to like toss aside to chapter 1. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so... Uh, I'm going to be all over uh, chapter 2 today, but I think uh, there's a, a, a sermon that Peter preaches, okay? And uh, this happens on the heels of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So in the first 13 verses, uh, we get the day of Pentecost, which what happens, I'm just going to uh, explain it a little bit. What happens is they're together. Um, it says in chapter 1, they were praying endlessly or without ceasing. They were always engaging in prayer, saying, God, we need you. We're dependent on you. All the stuff we talked about. And then in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were together all in one place. They were hanging out. They were praying. And then uh, this mighty wind rushes in, and the Spirit, fall, the Spirit of God falls upon that place. And there's, uh, there's fire, and they begin to engage and speak in different tongues. And it's this supernatural experience of the Holy Spirit indwelling their lives. And, and people begin to look at it, and they're like, this doesn't make sense. In the categories that I've built in my natural mind and how I've engaged and seen the world around me, I don't understand what is happening right now. And so their natural conclusion is they are drunk off their butts. I, that's the only thing I can order myself because it just doesn't make sense. And then Peter steps up and he says, no, 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 let me explain. He gives this marvelous sermon uh, where he says, this is what's happening here. But before we get too far into, um, into Peter's explanation um, and into Peter describing uh, how Jesus was the Messiah and is now ruling and reigning as Lord, I think, it's, uh, I think it's pertinent for us to recognize who is doing the talking here. And to do so, we're going to look at the counterpart of this book. I talked about how Luke and Acts were written by Luke. And uh, let's just keep in mind who this Peter is. So uh, I'm in Luke 22. I'm going to start in verse 31. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. But he says, uh, Simon, Simon, this is Peter. 
Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon Peter, that, you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, that you may strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Which is like, yeah, that's cool, Peter. But what we see lived out is not that. Peter says, I'm ready to go to prison for you, Jesus. I'm ready to be put to death for you, Jesus. Then Jesus looks at him. And I can't fathom how heartbreaking this would be if Jesus were to look at me and say this. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You'll deny that you know me three times. Then jump down to verse 54. Uh, This is after the rest. And then it says, then seizing him, or Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. And what did this bold, I'm ready to follow you to death, to prison, Peter do? Peter followed at a distance. Then when someone there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they'd sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, I think this man was with him. The Jesus that they just arrested, I think think this man that I'm seeing in the glimmer of a campfire was with Jesus. Verse 57 says, but he denied it. He looks at the servant girl and says, woman, I, I don't know him. Lie number one. A little later in the evening, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. You were one of the followers of this Jesus that's now being arrested and questioned and put on trial. (coughs) Peter's response is, I am not. Lie number two. And about an hour later, another person asserted, certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Line number three. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned back and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. For the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So Luke gives us a picture of Apostle Peter here. And Peter betrayed Jesus because he was ashamed. And Peter followed Jesus at a distance because he was afraid. So this Peter that was gung-ho, ready to give his life on behalf of Jesus's. This Peter that was already, I mean, keep in mind, he's pulling out swords. He's doing all sorts of nonsense when the rubber meets the road, this is the, the, the Peter that was afraid and ashamed. But also keep in mind that here, as we jump back to Acts chapter 2, Peter's not working by himself. I think what is marvelous to me, and it's so, it's so important for to, me to remember that these books of the Bible don't happen in isolation of one another. 
It's so important for, for me to remember, again, that Luke and Acts are inherently connected um, and that like the Gospels are all piled up on top of each other and that this isn't that far after Jesus' presence was there with them. It's really easy to read them in isolation, but if you read them like, kind of congruently like they're supposed to be read, uh, it, it, it really gives us this picture that when Peter comes to the equation, I was reading a commentary this week that said uh, in, in chapter 1, when they're trying to figure out who's going to replace Judas, um, like Peter's words kind of ring empty as he tries to take leadership. Because it's like, what? you remember what you did to Jesus? You were ashamed, you were afraid, you were uh, cowardly, you were all these things and you ran away. But in the moment that the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the early believers, we see an empowerment that is not of Peter's own accord. When he's filled with the Holy Spirit, when it's time to take ownership, what we see Peter doing is surrendering himself and surrendering his life to the Holy Spirit working in him. And we see him do something that is completely contrary to his past and his history and his demeanor and his behavior. Because time and time again, Peter proved uh, that he was uh, prideful and arrogant and simultaneously like embarrassed and ashamed and this mess of a human being that honestly, the older I get, the more I resonate with, just as a mess of a human. But when it came time to be God's representative here on earth, when people were pushing him to be like, these people are up to nonsense. Peter is the one filled by the Holy Spirit to rise to the occasion, empower, again, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the thing that God was asking him to do in this moment. And this is immediate evidence that his life has been yielded and transformed by the power of the Spirit working in and through him. Now, by no means... Is this a moment in time where the Apostle Peter achieves perfection in his walk with the Lord? And in fact, a lot of way, in a lot of ways, he still has a long way to go. Um, uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul reminds of, uh, of a spat that he has with Peter after this fact. And Peter um, was like, still a little bit embarrassed to sit with believers, Jesus followers, from another background. He was like, well, I'll just hang out with the Jewish people because I, I don't know if I want to be associated with that because he was worried about how it might look to people. So he's, st he's still a work in progress. This isn't a moment in time where he's like, okay, from this point forward in the book of Acts, we're going to see Peter do everything perfectly. But what it is, it is pointing to the fact that the Spirit is powerful and working in him because Peter is saying, I am yielded. I am, I am surrendering my wants, my desires, my rights, my preferences. I don't want to stand up in front of these people who are making fun of me, but I'm going to do it because that's what God is asking me to do in this moment. I read this week in Genesis uh, chapter 2, the Spirit of God breathed life into dust and created a human being. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has breathed life into a once cowardly disciple and created a new man who ha now has the gift of bold speech. Which begs the question for us today. What is the stuff in your life, in my life, in our lives collectively that is evidence that the Spirit of God is moving and working among us. 
Paul tells us in the book of Romans, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and working in you. He says again in Ephesians, the power that is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead is seat and seated him at the right uh, hand of the heavenly realms, far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only present age, but in the one to come. That same spirit is working in us. As Jesus' followers, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is working in us, but what is the evidence in our lives that it is working in us? <clears throat> now, you might come to this place saying, oh, I've got just really a mess of a past that I'm bringing to the table. You might come in here going like, I don't know how to make sense of everything that's happened to me because it's, it's wonky. Is backwards, it's broken, it's ugly. I've messed up, people messed up around me. And what Jesus is inviting us into is say, Jesus, surrender to the Holy Spirit. I took Peter, who literally, like he was next to me, and he disowned me. He said he doesn't know me. I don't know how it gets worse than that, saying the God that breathed life into us, saying, eh, I don't know him. But the Spirit indwells us, transforms us, makes us new. And is inviting us into living in that power. So what is the stuff that when you have surrendered your life to Jesus? And for some of us, it's a little bit hard. I'm so thankful for a faithful covenant family. I grew up in the church. So it's a little bit, the, the lines get a little bit fuzzy of before Jesus, after Jesus. I'm grateful for that fact. And then for some of us in this room, uh, there's a distinct moment in time where you went, okay, now I'm doing it. Now I'm surrendering my life fully to God. But regardless, this is one of the things that challenged me from the Francis Chan uh, book this week. Uh, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life, here's what was so challenging for me this week. Someone in comparison to someone who does not have the Holy Spirit, someone not following Jesus. How is your life markedly different? Yeah, you can have some general vagueness of like goodness or kindness. But this is the same power that took a, a Jesus who was dead and raised him back to life. I don't know how to explain it any more fully than that, but this is the same power that took a dead man and raised him back to life, and it is now living in us, empowering us and enabling us to live the lives that Jesus have called us to. So how do our lives look different than those not following Jesus? I will continue to say this and beat this drum over and over again, and I want you to hear that it's for me, your pastor, just as much as it is for you. I think I've said it for the past four weeks, and maybe I'll just say it all through the book of Acts. If the only thing that looks different about our lives as Jesus followers is showing up at 2915 Townway Road on Sunday mornings at 1030 and then going home, we are not following Jesus. 
But I also believe that there, there is no place in following Jesus for some sort of like white knuckle trying harder to embody the fruits of the Spirit. So then the question gets begged, how then are we transformed by the Spirit? Amanda and I were talking this week. We've been uh, here in Danville for July. Where's my math? Nine months? Is that nine months? We've been here since July, (laughs) however long that is. Not super long in the grand scheme of things. And Amanda were talking, uh, and I were talking this week about how uh, I told her something and she responded to me in a certain way. She's like, did this mannerism thing. And, uh, and uh, she was like, oh, that's weird. And it was uh, something that Sarah Lang does when she responds to her, to her Jordan. And it was not like something she'd ever done before. It was, it was very kind. It was not, it's not like you jerk or whatever. It was great. <laughs> but in eight, nine, since July, they've spent time together. And Amanda has begun to be transformed to look more like Sarah and to act more like Sarah and to talk more like Sarah. And I'm sure if we dug into Sarah and Jordan, there would be some uh, reciprocation of that. So how are we transformed by the Spirit? Like, how do we get uh, more loving and more patient, more kind, more goodness flowing in and out and through us? We spend time with God. We spend time with God. We prioritize our lives so that we have distinct periods of time where we say, God, you are so valuable to me that I am throwing production out the window. I was meeting with um, Bob Petty, who is our district superintendent for Indiana Indiana and Illinois uh, for our denomination. And I was meeting with him. And one of the things that we talked about um, as we talked about that is intimacy is inefficient. It often looks like we are getting nothing done. But under the surface, my, oh, my, are we getting so much done. We are being transformed by the living God. We get to spend, like, if you think about it, the God that breathed everything into existence, the God that spoke and there was, is saying, I'm here. I'm ready for you. I want to spend time with you. Uh, And so to be transformed by him, all we have to do is say, "Okay, okay, God, we're here with you. Tell me more about you. Maybe it's through engaging with scripture. Maybe through, it's through extended time in prayer. Maybe it's through just sitting and carving out time and space to go, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. There's a certain level of intimacy that you have with someone. When Amanda and I were, were first dating, uh, I remember we, uh, uh, we were in high school, uh, and we, we called each other every night. And this was, uh, students, I'm going to do a throwback. Does anyone remember when you had like a certain amount of minutes on your cell phone? And, you kinda, and, and so we had to call after 9 p.m. because it's unlimited nights and weekends. And they start after 9 p.m. And so we talk every night for extended periods of time. Uh, I feel like I'm dating myself. I am I'm 30 now. So that's, yeah, very, yeah, I know, very old. <laughs> 
We, ex- we talk extended periods of time. But also, now that we've gotten to know each other, we'll be celebrating 10 years uh, of marriage in May. And they, we can go on a car ride or sit around in, of an evening reading books or hanging out doing whatever. And, and we can go for long stretches of time without speaking. It's not because we're mad at one another. It's not because we're angry. It's not because there's something under the surface. It's just because there's a a level of intimacy. We haven't achieved perfection, but there's a level of intimacy where you're like, I don't have to say or do or achieve or try. We just love one another, and thus is the case with God. There's a level of intimacy that as you grow over time, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to produce anything. You don't have to come away with some nugget from Scripture where you can say, I can live that out this week. That's not bad. That's not wrong. That's holy. But there's a level of being transformed by just being with God. I think there's a couple things distinctly that the the Spirit transforms in Acts chapter (coughs) 2. And here's the two people I want to speak to, okay? Maybe you're here and you are interested in spiritual things. I don't, this is a whole spectrum of stuff, and you're just like, I'm interested in whatever this is. You have an opportunity, just like the crowd, to let the Spirit transform your heart. Acts chapter 2, verse, uh, let's start in verse 36. This is Peter speaking. He, gets re- he, he goes on and he explains, this is, who, uh, this is who God is. You crucified him. He's very pointed. He said, you, the crowd, crucified him. He says, therefore, let Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart And they said to the Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So maybe very simply at a baseline today, you have said, I have tried to live my own way. I have tried everything that the world has to offer. I, I, I've tried uh, secularism. I've tried, uh, I've tried uh, drugs and alcohol. I've tried, you fill in the blank, I've tried consumption, and it doesn't fulfill me. And then you begin to realize that those things are actually putting distance between you and God. And the invitation from Peter here is saying, uh, you're the one who crucified him, but guess what? He's offered you an invitation into relationship. See, these people were transformed by the Holy Spirit working. They were transformed in verse um, uh, 13. I talked about this earlier. Some of them have had too much wine. They're drunk. That's what the crowd was thinking. And God transforms them uh, to going, whoa, 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 that's something really special. And, and they hear the good news of the gospel, and they go, uh, it says, Peter, or uh, Luke says here that they're cut to the heart. Their heart is filleted open, and they're laid bare, and they say, God, you've seen us. We, we've, uh, we've sinned against you, and they cry out. They're like, what are we supposed to do? We want to do something. We don't like this conviction. What do we need to do? Peter says at the beginning, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord meaning he's ruling and reigning over the universe right now. 
in Messiah meaning he was the promised one set to redeem all of humanity from this predicament of sin that they were in. And this is good news, that we were far off, but that God sent Jesus. It's good news. And good news like this demands a response. And the response can either be, uh, thanks but no thanks, or total surrender. Anything in between is on the thanks but no thanks side. That God so loved the world uh, that he didn't want to see them die and separated in sin that he sent his son, Jesus. And here's the good news. Peter, just like Peter took the, uh, God took the, the past of Peter and redeemed it and made something new out of his life, uh, there is no boundaries drawn on who this promise is for. Verse 39, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. There is no limits put on who this grace is extended to. There is no one that God can't redeem. So you might feel far off. You might feel like your past disqualifies you. It's just not true. Those are lies from the enemy. God has offered redemption through the work of his son, Jesus. And that's for everybody. So I talked about several weeks ago, God's table is big and there's room for everyone at it. So maybe that's you. And maybe your response to that is just a surrender saying, Jesus, this is good news. I don't even know if I realize the extent of that good news that I was separated from the author of life, the creator of goodness, and I want to be reunited. I want to be reconciled and redeemed, brought back to him, and I want to surrender my life to you. Maybe that's your response. But maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus for a while. But you have neglected to to give the surrender of your life to the Holy Spirit. I always used to, uh, this is, uh, Acts chapter 2 comes to the top of the list when, um, like, church plants or or things come up. They're like, this is good. I always used to view Acts 2, 42 through the end as a formula. For like, if you want to have a godly church, we, you got to get together in your homes. You got to break bread. You got to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Uh, and, and I always viewed it as like a like an input that then the output would be godliness. And I think as we look at it, I think what's apparent here is that in fact this is the output, and the input is the Holy Spirit transforming lives. Pick up in verse 42 with me. It says, uh, so what happens is a bunch of people repent. It says about 3,000 people were added to the number of the church that day. So a move of God happens. Maybe a lot like what we're seeing right now at Asbury. A move of God happens, and the Spirit is alive and working and active. And verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone, anyone who had need. Every day, every day, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a total life 
surrendering and transformation of the church. Those following Jesus said, we are surrendering everything. You can have our free time. We'll have people over in our homes to fellowship and talk about God's goodness. You can have our possessions. If I have a, if you put it in modern context, if I have a car, I'll sell it. I'll give to someone who has need. You can have my cognitive ability. Whatever, uh, whatever there is there, you can have it. I'm going to devote myself to what the apostles are teaching about the good news of Jesus. You can take the entirety of my life and I'm going to allow you to transform it, Holy Spirit. And what's, what, what then happens because of that? There's, they meet together in homes. They sell possessions. They give away to the poor. They are a, a light in a dark world and they are holy different than the world that says, no, I'm going to isolate. I'm going to spend time with myself. I'm going like, to store up treasures for myself so that I make sure me and my family have enough. But what led to this? A surrender and a yielding to the Holy Spirit. I would like to think that the Holy Spirit working in us will transform us to a place where it is just a profound uh, and impactful public witness. That through the Holy Spirit working in us, we will do things that we can't do of our own accord on our own nature. But that people will look at us and go, are you telling me you, you went down to being a... Uh, having a single car in your family so that you could give, uh, so you could give to someone whose house just burnt down or, or to someone who is going through a crisis, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. We're, I'm connected to one another. We, we share everything. It's fine. This doesn't make sense. Like I talked about at the beginning, when the Holy Spirit was moving and the day of Pentecost and all this stuff was happening, people tried to put this in their ordered framework. And when they tried to put it in their ordered framework, it was like, does not compute. This doesn't make sense to me. But that is the lives we are called to live. I'll beat the drum again. If the only thing that looks different for us as Jesus followers is our attendance here on Sunday mornings, we're doing something wrong. But we don't have to be scared with that invitation to say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, transform the entirety of my life. We don't have to be scared because God is good. Even if that surrender leads you into a place of your life being completely wrecked or ruined from the world standards, in that space of being fully reliant on God, what you will get to experience is his goodness. And there is nothing better. If you think purchasing a new house is good, God is better. If you think that financial security is good, God is better. If you think having enough food on the table is good, God is better. You fill in the blank with anything, and I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that God is better than anything. And so that goodness, that better than, demands nothing less than full, total, and complete surrender.
Today we have an opportunity to encounter the Spirit of God who indwells believers. We get to encounter him working in and through us. One of the things, and I've, I fall into this camp. I'll raise my hand as guilty on this. One of the things I see Jesus followers doing a lot is arguing about when exactly the Holy Spirit indwells us. Does it happen at the point of fancy word for salvation or surrendering your life to Jesus? Does it happen at the point of regeneration? Of like, is it the moment you surrender your life to Jesus? Is that when the Holy Spirit comes? Or is it like, uh, in theological terms, it's called the second work of grace? Does it happen like, do you have to like seek it and does it happen a second time? And uh, we love to go round and round about this, Jesus followers. We're just like, well, I see this in Scripture, I see this. And I don't, uh, if I can be frank with you, much like I don't care about having a good handle on the timeline of Acts, I don't care when the Holy Spirit uh, comes into our life, because I don't see many people arguing on whether or not he comes into our life. Uh, I just see people arguing about when it happens. And maybe if we just throw off the argument of when the Holy Spirit comes on our lives and focus on allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, maybe we will be a light in a dark world. Maybe we'll be able to live the lives that Jesus is asking us to live, saying, Holy Spirit, empower us. Allow us to do stuff that we can't do on our own. And then we will see a move of God where people are saying and surrendering, saying, yes, I need Jesus. doesn't matter what past you're bringing to the table. It doesn't matter what history you're bringing to the table. All that matters is that you're bringing a surrendered heart. And guess what? The Holy Spirit will do the rest. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, there's a book I read from pretty often. It's a collection of uh, Puritan um, prayers, poems, devotions, stuff like that. It's called uh, Valley of Vision. And I would love to pray over uh, a prayer from the Valley of Vision uh, over our gathering. And I want to close this out with this. So if you will, uh, I, one of the things I teach is uh, that our... Uh, bodies and our composure and the ways we carry ourselves, uh, there's nothing special about it, but often it can reflect uh, inward realities. And so uh, if you come into this space and you're like, that's like, yeah, sure, God can still speak to you and work that way. But what if we said, as a sign of outwardly saying, I want to be open to what God's doing, if we could just take our palms and open them up to heaven and uh, ask this of God. So pray with me. God, our Father, fill us with your Spirit. That we will become completely engrossed with his presence. We are blind, send him to us that we might see. We are in the dark, let him say, let there be light. May he give us faith to behold that our names are engraven in your hand. Our souls and our bodies are redeemed by your blood and our sinfulness covered by your mercy and grace. Replenish us by his revealing grace that we may realize our unbreakable union with you, that we may know that you have given yourself to us forever in righteousness, love, mercy, and faithfulness. May the Spirit... Uh, and his comforts cheer us in our sorrows. 
His strength sustain us in our trials. His blessing revive us in our weakness. His presence render us a fruitful tree of holiness. His power establish us in peace and joy. His drawing make us ceaseless in our prayer. And his working kindle in us an undying devotion to him. Send him as the searcher of our hearts. To show us more of our corruptions and our helplessness apart from him. That in turn, you will be the one who we run to. The one who we cling to. The one we find rest in. As the beginning and end of our salvation. May we never put him aside with our indifference or our waywardness. Or grieve him by a cold and unwelcoming heart. Or resist him by rebellion. Answer our prayers, O Lord, for your great name's sake.